Heritage Enterprise Week, which is taking place this week. Um, this event is being run by one of our partners, who are ArtQuest, who are actually part of the university, but they also serve external artists, and they're also part of our department. Um, and I'm going to leave Tom to introduce that in a moment. My name's Vicky Fabry, I'm the Enterprise and Events Manager for Careers Employability at UAL. We help with anything related to um, your career, finding work, uh, working for yourself, so we are the organisers of this event this week. So I'm going to pass you over to Tom, who's here from ArtQuest. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for um, coming, everyone. It's great to have Patrick Goddard and Charlotte Mara here. I'm going to let them both introduce themselves. The title, I'm just going to say the title is kind of a starting point, but in fact, our conversation is going to be a lot wider spectrum, probably more about navigating the art world in regard to sales than actually finding specific collectors and buyers. Charlotte, if you want to come up Patrick? I'll let you introduce yourself first. Charlotte. Um, so um, I'll just tell you a little bit about my background. So um, uh, yeah, it's basically I started making work. Um, so I got a bachelor's um, at NYU in studio art. And in my last year, I had been working at Parquet Publishers, um, working really closely with artists to make editions. Um, I loved that, and so I sort of switched career paths and decided to get a master's in art history. Um, while I was at um, the Art Institute of Chicago, I was working part-time at a contemporary art gallery, Rona Hoffman Gallery, um, which is probably one of the most established um, galleries in Chicago, and I was incredibly lucky to be working there. So I ended up working there for four years, and then I moved to London um, to work for Allison Jakes, which is actually where I met Patrick. Um, so I worked for Allison for three years, um, then moved to Seventeen Gallery to work uh, quite closely with emerging artists. And I now work at Studio Voltaire in London, where I'm the sales and production manager. Um, yeah, I, I know this is kind of a, a, a long, um, Basically, I think it's important for you to know this so that you can kind of factor that in when I talk about different experiences because um, you know what I do now working for a not-for-profit institution um, on artist editions is very different than um, some of the commercial galleries I've worked at and also understanding the scale of these galleries, which you know could be emerging artists to artists that work primarily with the states um, is, is something to factor in as well. Hello, I'm Patrick Goddard. Um, I'm an artist who does a lot of things, but probably 60% is film work. Um, when Charlotte sent me the invitation to come and like join her today, I could see what like uh, the previous thread of discussion and Charlotte's sort of suggestion was. Oh, actually, I'd really like to invite Patrick Goddard because he's like the antithesis of a commercial artist, and I was just kind of like interested to be invited in this context but I do have some experience about surviving as an artist who uh, occasionally sells but doesn't and can't rely on sales to make ends meet uh, while still being a kind of a full-time artist um, so I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that in specific, um, and also like lots of my negative experiences with selling um, <laughs> uh, I yeah mostly make kind of like 
most of my bigger work's been sort of like 30, 35 minutes sort of mockumentaries, um, but I also do installations. I did a, like a graphic novel that took me a whole year in 2013 where my kind of hand seized up with cramp and I saw I'd never draw again. Having said that, I've just had a show come down today at the drawing rooms, which was uh, kind of a drawing project. Um, and I've um, recently, I think, sold out by making actually 2D <laughs> rectangles. Um, but I do actually believe in them as well. I make a lot of, as you can see, essentially just DIY stuff because I never seem to get the fucking funding. And I've spent a lot of time applying for funding um, and in my earlier career wasn't getting it. Um, and a lot of the aesthetic that I then subsequently dealt with and, and, and the artwork that I then produced was actually kind of like working around certain financial or physical problems which um, actually resulted for me in some of some kind of stronger or more um, different types of work which actually is now an aesthetic and a mode of working that I feel drawn to um, politically uh, as well as um, it just being cheaper and like feasible um, and sometimes you see people with artists with bigger budgets maybe like pers just personal wealth or whatever and doesn't always translate to the most original work and it can actually kind of stifle you weirdly. Um, in 2000, so I'm going to talk less about my own artwork now. Uh, in 2006 I graduated from my BA and in 2007 I kind of got uh, represented by a gallery um, at a time in like Shoreditch called the Agency Gallery which is still going. Um, and I had a few shows there uh, and then like finally, you know, I was only like 22 or 23 by this time in maybe 2008, I kind of sold like a fair bit of, it seemed like a lot of work to me, a lot of money to me at the time. And I was like um, living in squats and sort of essentially very poor. Um, and so five pounds was a lot of money. Um, but then I never got the money because uh, the gallery stole it. Uh, and then I went through years of taking her to court uh, to try and kind of get back about seven grand's worth of work, which, um, or seven grand's of money, which she got paid by collectors and never passed on. Um, I won the court case and then she then offered to pay me five pounds a month for the next 72 years. I said I had to take her back to court. And by the way, each time you take them to court, it costs you money. And you can, if, if and when they pay you, you can kind of get that money back. But like, if they don't pay you, you know, it's horrible. I didn't really have money. I was like boring. Like, oh, can I, you know. Um, anyway, I never got the money off her and I just spent the next few years just sort of like struggling to sleep at night whilst I came up with kind of incredibly complex um, reprisals that were worthy of Jonathan Creek. Um, and then I just like, at one point, just like, let it go, just let it go. And kind of then for years after that, because I was making sculpture at the time, and for years after that, uh, as I kind of kept making sculpture a bit, but then like ran out of storage places in my mum's garage, you know, and then sort of started thinking around these problems and then kind of got into video partially in that way. And then as I've uh, had more opportunities in like later or mid-career, um, sculpture's kind of re-entering and I'm, I'm finding it possible to make bigger and more ambitious installations again. But like looking back, I'm really pleased that I didn't make loads of money straight away or that I had terrible experiences, or that I didn't sell and sell out. And like, um, there's, a, there's a slight worry, especially as like young artists or like after you graduate, where 
and I saw this happen to a few of my friends, if you start selling straight away, then there's kind of then pressure on you for maybe often years to come to kind of, that's your work identity. And you know, when, if, you, if you're in your early 20s, for example, then the market doesn't always leave you room to continue experimenting, to continue to grow and continue to fail, but learn from those failures. And then, um, so often the people who I did see have a bit more of a commercial practice early on have faded away, essentially. Um, for whatever reasons, their fault or not their fault. Uh, but the market isn't always like a kind place for uh, young artists. Um, I, I, I went to the toilet a minute ago, I had like a big piece of my notes that I wrote down and I lost it between here and the toilet. So sorry about that. Um, I have uh, other like experience with DIY publishing. I got, as I said, did the uh, graphic novel. Um, that was because I had loads of time, no money, um, and a desk space, and I was like, uh, and I kind of been into comics. And I thought I can't draw. I get someone else to do it, and then, I, then, within a few months of drawing, like three days a week, I got quite good at drawing, or I got better at least, uh, and learnt that way. And I'm really glad I did that. Um, and through through that, and a few other kind of uh, self-published books of flash fiction and super short stories, kind of went to a lot of artists self-publishing fairs, and like selling printed matter there. But I mean, it's only ever going to be pocket money selling printed matter as artists. But that's great, and I'm really happy I did them because a lot of shows and uh, exposure came from these things. Um, yeah, and as Charlotte uh, mentioned, after so after I did my masters at Goldsmiths, um, I started being uh, art, got into art technicianing, like hanging, like packing art work and stuff. Uh, and then Charlotte came on as the director there. Uh, like a year after I started, and I was like, oh, you're the director, but you're my age, it's really annoying. Uh, but inevitably, sort of working your way through through the artwork, uh, through the art world as interns, as technicians, as studio assistants, as artists, assistants, blah, blah, blah. Actually, you're building up a, like a network of your own generation who would grow, grow up with you. Uh, and I look back at some of the, some of our closest friends are, some interns who were interning at Alison Jake's gallery with us, who are now kind of like, you know, directors at Carlos Ishikawa or, or Joseph Bahia at The Approach. Um, and now they're kind of really who are like a few years younger than us, but now they're kind of like movers and shakers in, I think, quite interesting younger galleries. Uh, and so it's, yeah, you can't, I don't know, you can't fast track your way to the top, but if you just, I found, give people of your own generation, even not important people, your respect and time, and are honest, honestly sociable with them. Over time, this is the peer group. That's the next generation of the art world, um, and that's how opportunities might yeah. arise. You had said something before that I want to go back to. That was um, Patrick had mentioned um, friends of his that had made work that was really commercial, and they had done really well early on. I think um, kind of being true to your work um, from the beginning is one of the most important things. What, there are two artists that I worked with, um, one is 80 years old now, and it wasn't until about 15 years ago that re she received recognition. Um, she had been making work her whole life and making these series that she would work on from between, between five and 10 years. 
her series, and then once she finished the series, she would stop completely and never go back to it. So those paintings or drawings, um, that period of work just was contained um, within those years. Um, and I always thought, I was amazed by it, you know, just when I went to her studio in Milan asking, like, how did you continue to do this? And she just said, like, I knew this was really important, and I knew that one day people would realize. Um, and I think that, I know that that's hard to do. You know, we're talking about sales because you have to pay your rent. You know, the smallest gallery I worked at, 17, uh, the artists were waiting for their money to come to them so that they could pay their rent, you know, whereas the largest gallery, it was so they could get more money for production for their next, um, for their next work. So I know that's difficult to do, but I think that early on it's especially important to be aware of that, that you will get, there will be certain works that collectors love and want more of, and you're the only one that can decide if you're making more. And my advice is to definitely not follow the market, but to follow you know, what you want to do. Um, and with the belief that it will work out, another artist, um, from uh, Rio de Janeiro was uh, the same sort of situation, um, much younger, but she really just received uh, recognition maybe 20 years, 15 years ago. Um, and the first dealer that took her on, um, a Sao Paulo-based dealer, showed her work for years at art fairs and it didn't sell and she said, I know, I know this work is important and I'm gonna continue to show it. I mean, that's that's a rare dealer, and it doesn't always happen that way, but I think that um, just to start out, that's something that I wanna say, because I think that the artists that do that, really you can't go wrong, and, and yes, there's a chance it might not sell, but if you make work dictated by the market, I can guarantee you that it won't work, and it won't do anything for your practice. Um, it works short term, but then, you know, yeah. I mean, I don't. Charlotte knows a lot more about like auction price and price. You know how to price work, and I just really stay clear of that. And like, that's what I've got a gallerist for. And you, you decide how much my works. But like, yeah. you know, people can sort of like young artists can get really hot. Uh, but then ultimately, if they if they just keep churning out the same stuff because that's the <coughs> demand and meeting the demand, uh, then collectors, yeah. for the most part, are fickle people. You know. They like magpies who like shiny stuff. They like whatever's hot, um, and they will and they will leave you, you know. And you might think I'm a, I'm only twenty five and I'm selling loads of money at auction, blah, blah, blah. like you'll be thirty and you'll be, you know, not doing great. Perhaps I mean some people some people do very well. There's, there's no like right or wrong right or wrong way of doing this, but I think accessibility too is important to uh, be aware of because basically if you um, you know, now at Studio Voltaire, um, I work on editions, and with a lot of the editions, they start at a certain price, and then the price will go up as the edition sells. And this is basically because otherwise, maybe people would say, oh, well, an edition of 100. I think I'll wait for next month's paycheck, and I'll get one then, because there's plenty of them. Whereas if you know the price will be jumping 50 quid, you'll get the edition you want now. Um, that's true for unique works as well. You know, the artist I was speaking about before that did this limited series, when collectors would hear that she's not returning to this series to work on them, but, um, you know, 
however many she made in from 1985 to 1992, that's that's it. Um, they would think, okay, maybe I should buy one now. You know, I think that's why maybe it's a bit easier to sell um, uh, estates of work, you know, by by artists that are no longer living because they know that it just won't exist anymore. But I think as a young living artist, being aware of that when you are talking to collectors is helpful and saying, you know, I'm not making more than this many of these, or, you know, this is a particular artwork that I spend a lot of time on and I'm not just churning them out. Um, you think that's obvious, but I think some people think, oh, they're starting out if I want 10, they'll make 10, um, which is not the case. Did I notice that the word love is on Charlotte's forehead? Yeah. It's great, and it keeps, she keeps kind of going, they love, 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 love. Sorry, I was, I was, I was fixed by the, that's a nice moment. Um, yeah, also with, with young artists, um, or when you're at the beginning of your career, there's, you, you can sell to your mum's mates, you know what I mean? And it's great uh, pocket money, but you, I don't, I don't know about your mums, but my mum's only got a few mates, um, and you're going to run out of those people quite quickly if you're kind of um, relying on or thinking that sales to your own immediate um, base of people who might be like a generation or two older than you who have some spare money, that's a, kind of a great way to keep your head above water, but it's not actually building a career. Um, and that, uh, actually in the process of sometimes, if you're coming out of a BA or even MA, if you're selling it to... Um, if you're selling your work to somebody who's kind of doing you a favour or whatever, uh, it, it can actually stop you having, like you lose some of your best work that you might otherwise be able to send off to a group show or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'd really encourage, yeah, sa sales or long-term sales as a form of income come from, um, hopefully come from a successful career. And actually there's loads of successful careers that don't have sales. Um, but there are lots of other means that artists can support themselves either directly through their practice as in um, getting funding uh, from the arts councils or project specific funding or residencies are really fun to do especially if you're kind of like younger and freer and you can just apply 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 to residencies and bounce all around the globe and kind of get put up in amazing places and get like a stipend and, and some budget to make artwork and whilst you might not be saving to like put down a deposit for a house, it's actually um, a really rewarding way of surviving and continuing to make artwork. Um, and that's why, whilst we have kind of like the trope of the poor artist, which is, still exists, because most artists are poor, um, it's not, it's, it's, it can be a different, le different type of poverty uh, that artists might experience um, to other, demographics of, of the poor, simply because we have a culturally rich life, we might have a socially rich life of being invited to amazing places or, um, culturally, socially, yeah that's it, uh, but you'll be poor, uh, but that's fine, um, and yeah, what else are there, um, jobs, uh, most of my friends who are successful artists didn't just suddenly do that, but um, intervening uh, jobs that were conducive to their practice so either maybe it's a job that you work from home or maybe it could might be working kind of in the gallery world to a degree or being an artist assistant 
Um, I've always found that working in the art world in a job that you don't like is the best because as soon as you start working, being an artist assistant for an artist who you actually really like the work of, then you, you know, you'll be there in 15 years time and you won't have left. Whereas if you kind of, you're kind of in the art world, like Charlotte can't say this, I hated Alison Jakes, I thought she was a bully. Um, and so I, I allowed myself like a, an emotional detachment from that workplace that I wasn't plowing all of my energies into that and I was just working three days a week. Whilst at the same time kind of benefiting from it, knowing Charlotte, knowing the other people, knowing the other artists who are kind of my, my mates now. And I see them, one's my like supervisor, I'm doing a PhD at the moment, one's uh, like a supervisor at Ruskin, Ian, well, it's not actually mine, but he's the head of the course. Um, so it was like, still super rewarding whilst I didn't feel emotionally pulled to that. So it's a fine line. And I think also that's where you get the best advice, um, you know, from your colleagues. If, if you're offered, um, maybe you're offered uh, a group show, um, you know, knowing whether it makes sense for you to participate in that show or whether it would potentially be damaging to your career, that's a question you ask your colleagues, um, curators that you know, friends that you know, um, people in your network and I think that um, yeah I think that it's important even if you are an artist that really does not want to talk about your own work but would prefer that someone from a gallery do that if you feel uncomfortable about it that's it's fairly normal there are a lot of artists that I worked with that hated going to fairs and they hated it they'd come to ask me a question and then a collector would ask about the work and they would be like, oh no, I don't want to, I don't want them to talk to me, like, I'm not comfortable doing that. Totally makes sense, but I do think if there's any way to work on becoming more comfortable speaking about your practice, it will be really helpful um, in the future. I think more and more people are expecting artists to do this, partially because they want a peek behind the scenes. They, you know, I feel like, I've been working at galleries for 10 years, and in the past five years, there's been more and more requests to go to artist studios. Um, and you know, this is this interest in Instagram posts where they can see pictures of the studio and the process of working. I think at the same time, you don't want to reveal everything. I know that when I first started, and I was working for Ron Hoffman Gallery, I was writing my thesis at the same time, and I was convinced that the more I knew, the better salesperson I would be. So if I was selling Mel Bachner, or I was selling Saul DeWitt, I needed to be able to rehearse every single show they had and talk about their practice A to Z. And um, you know, I remember Rona pulling me aside one of the first sales pitches, and she just said, "Charlotte, this is way too much information. You're boring people." So you know, they you want you need to know what you're talking about, um, and but I think that. You also need to read the collector and kind of sense like how much are they really um, able to like how much do they really want from me? And at the same time, like you know, that's me speaking as a salesperson. But you know, if you're an artist talking about your practice, I can't tell you what to say, but I can say that you probably want to. You don't want to reveal your entire practice. It's more you know what distinguishes your work from from your contemporaries and you know what you feel is really special about your work and maybe a little bit about how it's made um, 
know what would be interesting to them and all based on kind of reading what you're getting from them um, as well. So, um, Charlotte, uh, what do you think? That's a percent of my point. Charlotte, what do you uh, how do you think an artist's biography or um, general character or or their art practice, ex excluding their actual artwork, yeah. plays into creating the myth of an artist or um, or the the hype around a given artist is that is that important? Is it? I mean, that's a genuine yeah, question. I, don't I, th I think in some cases, yes. I think ultimately, maybe I I'm an optimist in liking to think that the work can speak for itself. I mean, of course, there's this hype, uh, you know, around artists definitely factors in, but I think that. I've worked with so many really successful artists that absolutely just hate dealing with collectors or just the general public even and just sort of like to work in a vacuum that have been very successful. I, that's rare, you know. I think that it's probably if you can become more comfortable with a way of interacting with the art world whichever way sort of works for you and your practice um, in a way that you can do it genuinely, do that. But um, I do think there's a reason for the gallery structure so that you're somewhat removed. So in that sense, this hype could be, maybe part of it's real and part of it is the creation of you know, the gallery that represents you. Um, I joined Instagram about 10 days ago, really enjoying it. I've done about five posts, got some likes. Um, I felt pressured to do that, uh, and I felt that some of my contemporaries were sort of using it very successfully as a, um, as a promotional tool. Um, do you think that's important? Do you, has it always been important? Will we have a new Instagram in five years' time? Yeah, like, I, I, mean, I mean, I think that now it, it, it's a totally different, Instagram has changed everything. Um, it had never happened until about a year and a half ago when an artist emailed the gallery and said, oh, could you email these people details about my work? I think they're interested in buying it, which is sort of reverse. And obviously if this happens a lot, then the artist would wonder, you know, why do I even need a gallery? Based on Instagram or? Based, oh, the collectors had liked yeah. the... Yeah, exactly, like an artist had posted, you know, a painting and right. collectors had liked it. So then, in that case, they're emailing the gallery, which is the reverse of how it's supposed to happen. Um, but I think now it's, it's just about getting your work seen, right? So it's a lot of artists will say, yeah, the reason I have a gallery is art fairs. That's where everyone buys things, and I want to make this work for the fair. Part of the problem is dealers will ask artists to produce a lot of work for the fair because maybe you'll only have one work on the wall but then every dealer wants to have six in the back room so if that does well you switch it out you know you can sell so many more than you actually have wall space for um, you know factoring in that fairs are really expensive and in some cases small galleries even if they sell out their entire booth can only just break even paying for the cost of not only the booth, but their staff accommodation and the shipping and everything. Um, I think, you know, in some cases, the gallery will tell the artists, actually, you know, we've 
laid everything out and you can't put your work up for the opening. This was actually my least favorite part of the job is having to tell artists, sorry, I know you've worked really hard on making these pieces, but it can't go up. And the reason would be, you know, they've calculated they can't make enough or that work doesn't look good with the work that has to go up because it's already been promised to someone who's gonna view it the first day. I mean, there's a million complicated reasons and you know, from the gallery's perspective, they all make sense. But this is very frustrating for an artist who's spent weeks and months, you know, dedicated so much time and energy making works that possibly could never, might never be shown. Yeah, I made some 2D blue rectangles for freeze recently and Dave, my gallerist, sold, it was supposed to have three on the wall, and Dave sold two of them before the fair opened. And I was like, oh yeah, nice one, Dave. And then he didn't, set, then he didn't show, show them. So it was kind of like, um, I don't know, so it was also kind of disappointing because then I missed out on thousands of people actually seeing the work because it had been kind of pre-sold as well. Um, so yeah, sales, sales aren't always, you know, I mean, the point of freeze is just a gigantic trade fair anyway, so like, too much into it but yeah it was also kind of I was really disappointed and hated going to freeze and seeing that and I, I personally I hate being around cutters and that side of the art world and I get really despondent and go home like kicking myself for like not chatting to the right people and feeling like inadequate that I that I, I see some of my other more networky contemporaries sort of like working the room and I'm like I can't do that I'm great at fine at talking to people uh, but I, I would never go up to somebody who I thought was important and schmooze them because I would just cringe too much at myself. So there is like... Which is why you have people representing you at galleries. Which is why you have people representing you. you but like, I, probably, I probably like don't do as well as some other artists because of that. But then again, if I was like that, I probably wouldn't be an artist. I'd be like a car salesman, you know? Um, I mean, it is a performance. So we were talking about this earlier and I was saying that a friend of mine um, gave me this tip. Uh, she, she's worked at galleries forever, and she said when I was just starting out, pretend that you're an actor playing the part of a woman that works at an art gallery. And this really helped me because it's this mental detachment. I mean, these fairs are brutal. You're on your feet, standing on cement for seven days straight, 10-hour days, where you go to dinners after you're done. And the whole time you have to, you know, one of the main things with sales is you have to be really excited about what you're selling. So you're really excited for seven days straight, you know. <laughs> it's exhausting. But um, I will say that um, it's a performance. And that's how you can really tackle it and, and do it well. And not, you know, not that you necessarily have to if you're an artist. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it does help. But you don't have to do that all the time. You know, that's why you have someone to represent you. But I think, um, I think, yeah, I think it's that excitement about the work that would all, that collectors often mention too with studio visits. Like I loved seeing how interested the artist was in what they were doing, you know? And you think like, well, yeah. <laughs> They're interested in what they're doing. Like, it's obvious because you're so used to it. But at the same time, I think that for them, they probably, like, part of the privilege of being part of this art world is having that direct access. So you see someone who's 
you know, taking a lot of risk. You know, there's no guarantee that you'll be a, a financial success as an artist. Not that that's everyone's goal, but most people do want to pay their rent um, and don't want to struggle. So um, I do think that that's what comes with it is like that real excitement, like, oh, I just, I'm waking up and I have to make this. It's part of the reason why I sort of changed career paths is I thought, I really like making work, but I don't feel like I have to do it. I thought of it as work, in which case I thought maybe instead I'll work closely with artists and I can be around that excitement. Because I too, like, that's, that's, you know, why I do what I do. Um, and I think that when you're talking about your work, when you're selling your work, that's probably like the key thing is just relaying to people why you're so delighted to be making this. Because it's probably really obvious to you, so obvious that you almost feel like you don't need to mention. It's not to them, you know? Like it's a whole different world to them that they're just peering into, like fascinated. And that's why they want to spend money on that, is they can look at it and kind of have, have something, you know, basically be enriched by your practice. But articulating your practice can also, or like pushing, pushing that, I'm repeat myself a little bit, can also go wrong. So whilst, whilst you might impress like a certain curator or a certain set of um, collectors, there will be a different demographic who think you're a schmoozy dick. Uh, and they will always have you down as that, even if you change, even if you change tactic. Like there will be a big demographic of people who kind of write you off as being like a social networker or like a social climber. Um, and if you're that person in the private view who's like chatting to somebody but like kind of always looking over their shoulder, like scanning the room, like it gets noticed. And people grow up. People go into. People become important. Uh, and if you're if you're kind of like always looking for somebody more important than the person you're talking to, whatever, um, like it does follow you around. Similarly with, with sales, you can sell to bad people like um, who will give you money for it, but it will tarnish your represent, uh, reputation. So for example, I'm a um, firm boycotter of uh, Zygludovich uh, art, art collection, and by extension 176 gallery in um, wherever it is, not Kretchen, up north. Um, and there's a, uh, a sizable part of my generation boycott Zygludovich for various reasons to do with um, um, lobbying of, of the British government and press on behalf of a right-wing Israeli um, uh, force to, to so they, they heighten um, their media attention um, and kick into play loads of funds whenever Israel's getting bad, bad press for incursions into Gaza or whatever. And there's a lot of people who uh, boycott them because of that. But at the same time, they're an art fund that deliberately collect young, primarily London-based artists making video. It's me, it's like one of the only people who do it in their films, it's terrible. But at the same time, I don't think there's any slightly politicized artists who I know who would sell to them. And then, uh, and eyebrows are raised when you do as well. But similar, uh, maybe it's not as relevant now, but with Saatchi, there's a lot of people who don't sell to Saatchi because he's kind of become synonymous with this like quite naff YBA thing which is sort of like doesn't really have much like cultural capital perhaps these days or in some people's eyes so it's not you know you're getting you might make inroads in one direction but actually you, you can also exclude other opportunities or other avenues of 
uh, respect and ultimately opportunities in your career by doing those. So, I can say to like something, um, you know, basically like for um, coming up with lists for sales when you're working at a gallery, you'll research. Um, public and private collections and see basically what they currently have and therefore you can determine what they might be interested in. Um, Mark Pascal, who's a, a drawings curator at the Art Institute of Chicago, is a friend of mine. He would always say, it's so annoying when I get these emails from people that work at galleries that haven't studied the collection and will offer me things that don't make any sense. Um, because it does take a lot of time to sort of go through and see what are the new acquisitions, when was that bought, um, you know, which, what artists are really important that aren't in the collection and why is that? Um, you know, when an uh, institution gets money, why, like, what, are there any stipulations with what they're trying to, basically, like, how they're trying to expand the collection? There's no reason why you as artists can't do this yourselves. You know, I think that that it's very empowering in terms of, you know, maybe you'll be at a dinner sitting next to a curator of an institution and you can talk about what they have in their collection. I don't feel like that's um, sleazy, that's not being, you know, a networker in a way that people look down upon. That's more just an interest in the context that you would hope to be shown in. So I think that's something that if I were an artist, I would definitely do myself. And then even if you are represented, you could say, have you contacted you know, the assistant curator at MoMA? I think based on some of the recent acquisitions, I would make sense with their program. You know, um, Or maybe you'd run into her yourself. So I think this is, um, this is something that you can definitely do and is something that's also really interesting, you know, because there are always artists that you look up to and hope to kind of be shown alongside of. And I think looking at their biography and where they started is, you know, sort of the, the natural pathway. I know it's what, it's what I did, um, you know, for art history. I remember when I was interning at Parquet I had said to one of my advisors, who was friends with Kay Sophie Rabinowitz, who was the editor at the time, I said, I want to be her. <laughs> and then he had repeated it to her, and I was really embarrassed. But she said, no, that's good. You know, like, that's good. You know, I can't have this job forever. And, you know, I, I looked up where she went to school, who she studied with. You know, I ended up um, interning for her husband at Artist Space. Um, who is now a curator at MoMA. I think it's, these networks are small no matter what city you're in. And I think you access it whichever way you feel comfortable. Yeah, I'm going to actually take back some of my bet a minute ago, because I was just thinking, oh yeah, I did all get all those shows by cold calling that person that time. Um, so, you know, when I graduated, I, um, I had like a project for, that I thought would be like really suited to Matt's gallery, which comes in Bow. And contacted my um, one of my old tutors, Lindsay Sears from Goldsmiths, uh, who had been kind of supportive, and she's represented by Matt's. And I was like, oh, maybe this this project would suit Matt's. Can you give me an introduction? And she was like, 
<coughs> Robin, who runs Prince Gallery, Robin won't like that, it's a terrible idea, but I'll, I'll introduce you, like, I, and I think you're interested, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, fast forward, you know, a few months, and then he, this is when you sort of gave DVDs over. Um, so I like, gave him a DVD and then like, then I probably like bumped into, you know, once you meet somebody you start seeing them about a bit and it was a bit embarrassing because I was probably like a little fanboy kind of like, oh, because um, I ran a bit nervous. And then like, um, at that stage I was doing kind of like a lot of like very small kind of embarrassing shows and uh, I remember doing, doing one and I invite, I emailed him and invited him, like personalised email, but I didn't know him that well. Um, and I got to the show, and he said he might come, and I was like, and I got to the show, and it was really embarrassing. It was like a group show, and the other work was shit, and my work was installed badly, and I was like, oh, please let Robin not come, because it'd be really terrible. Um, and then he, like, then he texted me saying, oh, sorry, I couldn't make the show, but maybe we can have a studio visit, and I was like, oh. <laughs> um, So it, you never quite know, like, what opportunity, so, so sometimes, yeah, you do need to do kind of like, bad shows or amateur shows because you never know what's going to come out of them even if there's only one person who goes to something in you know Bradford like that can be the right person to start off like chain reactions that you don't know um, what's going to happen um, or where they're going to end and similarly with occasionally not exploiting but like exploring potential relationships um, and doing so yeah you don't have to do it in a cringing way like it can be done in a sensitive or honest or humble way of just like, I really respect your gallery, here's some of my work, and it can be embarrassing. And I've done it wrong a few times. I think I like, like cold called Morgan Quintance once, I still kind of like cringe about like, me like email, I think I Facebook messaged him a link to a video which I thought he might like because I read his article. And I still kind of like, I'm a bit shy when I see him now. I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't remember that I did that. But yeah, you, but also you never quite know where where these things are going to go. I do think a lot of dealers find new artists through their, the artists they currently have. I think that I think that getting recommendations for new artists to take on through other artists is probably the most common way. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's just, that's not networking, that, that's just yeah. your peers, you know. That's natural. Um, that's how I got represented at 17, probably, because I kind of knew Dave a little bit before. And then my friend Mariana Simnett um, had a show there, uh, and she she was it was all behind schedule. She was like, I need some extra pair of hands. I was like, no worries, I'm there, babe. So like ran down, did like a long day. Then we went to the pub and got pissed afterwards, and it was sort of like, and then from then it becomes a bit fonder. And then and then when he sees my name come up in other smaller shows, then suddenly he's he's there saying, oh, hey, buddy, how's it going? Like, you know. Um, so yeah, networks, you know, they can, they can, and sh if you're doing it right, can happen organically at dinners and at, yeah. and at parties. And like, would be lying to you if if going to parties and getting drunk with cat gallerists, curators, and collectors didn't help. It kind of does help, but don't get too drunk because that can not help. I did that once. So should we do questions? Yeah. Has anyone got any questions? Me, very intimidating, mm -hmm. but then it makes me think, yeah, 
If I want to practice as an artist, I have to get some kind of job to live. Why can't it be a curator or a dealer? Curators, <laughs> that's not a money-spinning job. <laughs> um, and gallerists, not a money-spinning job. Um, so you could work in a gallery yeah. um, and you'd be an artist. Yeah, that happens. Um, but you work your own skill set. Like, I don't... Those, those, I used to have a GoPro to my head. I'm not like a, a filmmaker. I have a lot of filmmaking friends who do have a commercial film practice on the side and have support themselves by that. You work with with your with whatever skills you have and whatever your interests you have. Think, but yeah. curation isn't like a money spinning thing. So don't. What's money spinning mean? Sorry. It's not going to earn you money. Oh. You, I mean, we, there's probably like a lecture next door about curators <laughs> talking about how to earn money as curators. <laughs> talking to <laughs> So a dealer would be, um, you know, like a, a commercial art gallery that represents artists, um, and that wouldn't necessarily be creating a whole, you know, sh group show, group exhibition. Although you could have a group exhibition, but um, you know, it's more the commercial side of it is. Think about the record dress. producer and a DJ. The DJ is like selecting all the tracks, and actually DJs make a lot of money, so that's not a good example. <laughs> but think about the DJ. They're kind of selecting other artists like to, to play the records at certain events, but actually it's the... Uh, but then you've also got the, the record company, and they're very different. Uh, and you might have a DJ who like only plays records from this one record company, but, uh, but they're kind of... And they might bleed into one yeah. another, like a successful DJ might then go and run a record company. Does that make sense? That wasn't totally negative, I was glad they sold it. It's just, anyway, okay. but yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's a common to have like contracts uh, before you like work with these people where you could possibly avoid those kind of issues. I mean, technically, you would have, technically, you're supposed to have consignment agreements where you outline all of this. The reality is, nowhere that I've worked has that been something that's regularly done just because of the nature of it's such a fast-paced environment and something will go up and down like at a fair so quickly that if we were waiting for artists to sign things especially artists that are all over the world it would just never happen um so it's an interesting question because it's like a lot of it is just based on trust you really have to trust your dealer because ultimately you're not there, you know, when all these transactions are happening. Um, and if you have an honest dealer, then you know that, you know, they're not taking extra commissions and they're talking about your work in the right way. And, you know, they discuss with you beforehand, okay, up to 15% discount, but you won't share in anything after that. It comes out of my cut. All these things um, you basically decide on beforehand. But, um, I think, you know, it's like unlike a museum setting, everything's just happening so quickly that often these contracts aren't signed and sometimes it can lead to problems, yeah. But also, you know, I kind of had a contract with that person. That's why I took them to court and won, you know. 
uh, having a contract's great, but unless you've, like, it, contracts don't, the legal process doesn't favor people with no money. Because even if someone wrongs you, and even if they break a contract with you, unless you've got money to get, like, lawyers and whatever else, um, then you're fucked. So I could have had, like, I could have had them sign their name in blood, but unless I can, like, bring an army of lawyers, and then they claim, like, bankruptcy, but they, but they weren't bankrupt, they still own their house, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I was just spending years chasing them around the law courts for it. So, you know, bureaucracy isn't always uh, your safety net in that respect. Can I do anything else? Just around, at what point do you consider yourself collectible? And it's partly to do with, yes, there's the kind of default that when an artist dies, that stuff becomes collectible. <laughs> I would say forget the collectors, work, concentrate on a career. Yeah. And I think collectors yeah. will come second. But. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that you need to think about your work as collectible immediately. You know, this example of this artist that I worked with that made these limited series, no one collected her work for many, many years. And she always thought of everything she was making as an important artwork that would be collected. And now it is. You know, but you can't. Um, I think MAs are helpful in that they try and help foster this network so that you're meeting more people and they have these shows so more people are seeing your work. But if you can figure out how to do that yourself um, <coughs> and you're confident in your work, then it's not necessarily, you know, that's not necessary. Yeah, it's about networks and it's about being part of, part of a world and learning from your, you know, you learn more from your peers than you do from your tutors half the yeah. time. Um, although they're very challenging and stimulating places, university. And, but like, I went to university, it was kind of like a while ago now. So it was, it was only like a thousand pounds a year, I think I paid for my VA. It's a different world now. Um, and would I do it the same? I don't know. It depends on your, your personal thing. It is possible to operate outside of university systems uh, but you're going to have to be more imaginative and break your way in because, um, yeah, you're going to have to kind of try harder to break your way into the inside and also con to con keep learning as well. And I don't know, necessarily know always how to do that super quick, but it's possible. Join the reading group. There's loads of gallery reading groups. There's loads of, like, free events at small, you know, project spaces yeah. where you can go and meet other people and... Um, join on gallery tours or whatever it might be, or go to public events like this. Um, and you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll find yourself with friends and, and a network at, at some point. We've got time for one more question. Yeah, the lady in red. Um, I
can't change the system. I mean, I think like what Artsy's doing is sort of making it more accessible, right? So I think that Instagram Artsy, um, these sort of uh, these sort of things are headed towards what you're talking about. Um, I think in some cases, collectors kind of like the whole social aspect that a gallery can provide. You know, I think that they like knowing everyone that works at all of the top galleries and being invited to exclusive parties at our Basel Miami or Freeze New York. And it's, I think in that case, when it's about a lifestyle, then that's a different story. But sure, I totally agree that, you know, some people don't care about that. They don't want to be a part of that. They just want the work, in which case, online is probably the way they will turn. But I, in my experience, and I'm, I have very different you know, side of things to Charlotte, they love that exclusivity. They love it that you can't just go in being so like, you know, a tech billionaire and just yeah. buy up everything, although you actually can. Um, you know, they love feeling special. They love feeling like they're part of a clique that you can't just buy your way into, even though you yeah. can. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the, the like height of elitism, and that's what's quite horrible about the art world, is that it's not accessible. And that's why they can sell for, you know, Anish Kapoor's for that amount of money, even though he pops a new one out of his studio every week and probably doesn't even touch the sculptures himself. It's because it's elitist, you know? And, and when, you, when you own that work, it shows not only do you have the money to buy it or the taste to choose it, but you also have the social networks to be able to even know how to navigate buying it in the first place. And it's all just sort of like, so for the super rich, for example, you know, there's only so many supercars you can get, and actually, like, if you get a like a Ferrari, it's kind of tacky, right? You could be, you know, we all know, like, getting a massive yacht. Some, you know, for some rich people, doesn't cut it because, you know, every every oligarch's got a yacht. You know, what what's going to separate me and my cultural capital from what these kind of like stupid other rich people have? Even though, you know, they might also be stupid in their own right, but like they're always trying to you know, um, define themselves by their, like, exclusivity. Perhaps. I think we're going to have to finish now. Maybe come and ask some questions first. Me, Kathy, the living room, just because we've got another talk in here. And um, before you go, the next talk is um, how to make a living and sell your work with Made in Art London. So if you've got to that or haven't, I'm sure you can stick around for that. But thank you very much to Tom and Mark for organising. <laughs>